Welcome to The Lover's Hole. We're reading through the Jack Aubrey, Stephen Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. You're with Mike. And with Ian. And we appreciate you listening. Ian, tell us, what was going on? What do we have to look forward to this week? Mike, well, we're right in the heart of the story of The Surgeon's Mate. Having had what seems like such a fleeting time at sea, Stephen and Jack and their new companion, Yagiello, had successfully managed to persuade the Catalan forces occupying Grimm's home to turn against Napoleon. And they were in the process of escorting, convoying these Catalan forces back home to the Iberian Peninsula when the aerial commanded by Jack had got tangled up in a chase involving a French frigate, having also managed to break their chronometer they were out in their calculation longitude so they ended up in a storm blown ashore on the Brittany coast and just about by a feat of seamanship and good fortune managed to scrape ashore alongside a mole somewhere in Brittany, just as the poor old aerial sank so there they are on shore and mike this looks like a threatening situation we've got jack and stephen ashore imprisoned as they have been imprisoned in the past in the hands of the french military but also potentially accessible to the french intelligence service and mm-hmm. we know that that carries some risk for stephen uh, we know that both of them are, are known to the french authorities the good news though is that this puts stephen back on the same soil as diana so i wonder mike if there's going to be a connection for us to pick up here between stephen and diana as the story moves on with them in captivity in France. Oh, that would be nice. That would be nice. Well, the the good news, I guess, is that unlike the last time Stephen was on French soil in the hands of, of his captors, they're now actually being treated pretty nicely because the ship had not been taken. Yeah. They weren't pillaged. They kind of you know turned themselves in. And so they get to keep their possessions. They get to keep their money. Uh, They get to go ahead and actually order out rather than just taking necessarily prison food. Um, And it's it's funny. So they go, they're sort of dreading this thing. And then right away, because things are so good, of course, everybody has a very different reaction. So, you know, Jack visits the men and they're all upset about the French bread because it's full of holes. And, (laughs) you know, they say it cannot nourish a man. If a man ate holes, he must necessarily blow himself out with air like a bladder. It stood to reason. <laughs> and as the uh, the French port admiral, being an administrator and taking everybody's names and information as required, and he is uh, he's a little upset and he calls Jack in. He says, I refuse to believe, sir, that all your officers but one are descended from Queen Anne. And Jack replies, <laughs> I'm sorry to tell you, sir, the queen is dead. And common decency therefore forbids me to make any comment. That's, so, um, the good news is that Stephen's godfather, who they dressed as a private in the Marines to smuggle him off board, knowing that that he would be taken and hung, has managed to escape. So a bit of good news as as we land here. Yeah, he gets a comedy name as well, doesn't he? Corporal Himmelfart. That's <laughs> was him. So everybody's quite easy going. They're all feeling pretty sanguine, to be honest, about their situation so far. Although, Mike, I've got a feeling that Stephen's thoughts must be turning to what might happen when he gets passed down the line to the French authorities. Because last time he was in the hands of the French in Mahon, they tortured him half to death. Right. And since then, he's done a whole bunch of things <laughs> to upset the American and the French intelligence networks. He must be so few hairs breadths away 
from being identified and being denounced as a spy. And that's not a thing that'll end well. No, no, it won't. So therefore, they're, they're speculating, which prison are we going to get sent to? If they get treated as plain old prisoners of war, then they might get sent to Verdun, which is grim, but every day, if you like. There's a more severe category of prison, the prison at Beach, which is where officers are sent who have who have attempted to escape. They're both cold, they're both forbidding, um, but fortunately they have some intel from Lieutenant Hyde who says he's escaped from both and gives some information that might aid future escape attempts. Yeah, and, and in the midst of all this, we've got Yagyello, who is still Yagyello, mm. and a, a young woman is <laughs> sent out for meals. Yagyello, having lost all his money to Stephen in a poker game, is saying, I, I really can't order much. And uh, she brings him this lavish meal. He says, you know, I, I don't have any money. And she says, well, you could pay me back in other ways and suggests meeting her out in the hallway. Um, and she's blushing, but uh, Yagello also seems to be kind of blushing the same thing. And Jack is just dumbfounded. He still can't, he just can't figure out what it is with Yagello and women. Oh, man. So m- maybe that makes Yagello an asset. No. Or maybe that makes him a bit of an embarrassment and a liability. We'll, we're going to have to see, aren't we? There you go. So, they're, they're sitting down. They're still in prison near to the Brittany coast, and they're sitting down eating dinner, Stephen, Jack, and Yagiello, and they're aware of a number of people looking at them through the Judas hole, through the peephole in the doors to their cell. And they are called to the admiral's office after dinner, and he doesn't seem any longer to be the kind host, but he seems quite embarrassed, and he's quite formal and standoffish. And with him, there's this middle-aged civilian, and the description of this civilian could almost be a description of Stephen. Right. Uh, shabby black coat, uh, fairly white neckcloth, emphasis fairly, uh, with grizzled hair and dark eyes and a face familiar to Stephen as the Admiral speaks. And he asks Stephen, among other things, if he, Stephen, was the person who'd recently been invited to address the Institute. And we get the first sense, Mike, that the intelligence authorities are on to the idea that they might have somebody who meets the description of the spy that's caused so much damage, and they might be able to link the identity of Stephen Maturin to all that harm that's been done to the French intelligence network. Anyhow, all three men refuse to answer. They invoke the laws of war, which say that they're only obliged to confirm their name and their rank. And the admiral says that since these answers are unsatisfactory, they've got to proceed to Paris. So this sounds grim, but might we get to meet a new character and I think it's fair to say this is a new character that's going to have some impact for the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Monsieur Duhamel. Am I saying that at all? Du- Duhamel. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so Duhamel is this character who's taking them off. And, and, and Jack's a little upset. It's like, no, no, I've got to I've got to provide for my men. And nope, nope, you're hustled off to Paris right now. Jack gives the admiral a purse with money set aside to take care of his men. So they're, they're all well cared mm-hmm. for and they head out. And as they're riding in the coach, O'Brien writes now and then Stephen caught Duramel's eye upon him. And he thought he detected a certain secret inner amusement an understanding as of one professional for another caught in a very difficult position indeed. But the knowing black eye would, glaze over at once and return to its watching of the various provinces that they traversed. Dermel seemed immune to boredom, unwearied by their long stages, 
above human weakness except at mealtimes. Which makes him a great character for an O'Brien story. Right. (laughs) As we're going to hear. But Mike, I want to just hark back to something we said in the last podcast. We were saying how in this story so far, Stephen's occupied a lot of the character territory that is normally occupied by Jack. And here it is again. It tends to be Jack who, when in the hands of the French or of the opposition or of the Americans, for example, finds it easy to make connections with his adversaries, like with Commodore Bainbridge in Boston. Right. And now it's Stephen who's got the sort of peer-to-peer, adversary-to-adversary connection going on. And I think it's going to play out in an interesting way. So there's this twinkle in the eye of Duhamel, and Stephen is at a loss to figure out what that might all mean. But off they go. They have given their word, their parole, that they won't escape. They're guarded by a troop of horsemen. And we've already mentioned that Duhamel has a weakness for food. They eat together at inns along the way. So we have this scene. Duhamel sits at his own table. He has Jack and Stephen and Yagyello. And he's a big fan at each time they stop of occupying his table, calling ahead and ordering the best of the regional dishes. And I've got to say, if you've ever traveled with a French person, this is the way to go. This is the way to eat. When in France, eat with the French. However, they're all tempted a little bit to play the gourmand. So Jack and Duhamel seemed to straight away be in a silent competition to out-eat and out-drink each other. Because with Jack, it's just a matter of you know, bucolic male physical pride to see how much you can tuck away. And Yag Yellow also decides that this is just too good of an opportunity. He overindulges. And the tone, the atmosphere starts to get a bit more easygoing. There's this little moment where Yagiello decides that he's going to play a key bugle, a little baby trumpet that a lady had given him. And he's about to stick his head out the window. And Duhamel points a pistol at him, cocks it. And it says here, Yagiello sat down abruptly. I was only going to sound a salute, he said in a startled voice. You forget I have given my parole. And the gleam of ferocity, it says, faded from Duhamel's face, replaced by a sceptical and disillusioned look. You shall blow it during halts, he said, not in the coach. So we've got this little sense of irony and amusement between all of them now, not only between Stephen and Duhamel, and their overindulgence is going to start to cause them problems, I think. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, they're, they're changing regions. They leave Brittany. They enter Normandy. The sauces more and more cream in them. And Jack is finding that he has to stop the coach every few miles to run, find a bush or a hedge. And finally, they stop for one meal. And Duramalt sees a, a tub of fresh crayfish. And O'Brien tells us that these crayfish had not fasted long enough to purge themselves of all their waste. But Duramalt said, no, never mind. I want them lightly boiled, just seized, you know, just, ooh, don't overdo them. I want them immediately for dinner. And Stephen <laughs> is thinking about this long ride, and, and he's a little concerned about what may lay ahead. So he didn't have much an appetite, but the other three just gouge themselves on these crayfish. And uh, so O'Brien tells us that they're they're back in the coach, and Jack, who's already had his system weakened here, became so quickly ill, so obviously and transparently disordered in the middle of an empty road that at last, Dormel suggested that Dr. Matron should do something for him, should prescribe physic or take some appropriate measures. (laughs) So the social setting of a dinner is the undoing (laughs) of everybody involved. Really funny. And 
it also carries us quite quickly into the dark side. So they stop. Stephen seizes the opportunity to write out a list. And he goes to the apothecary and he returns with what is called as a horse-sized enema. And we know already that Patrick O'Brien likes talking about the digestive processes of horses. Right. A horse-sized enema, which sounds terrifying, and a number of large and small bottles. And we learn that one of the larger bottles is laudanum, which he's dosed Jack with. And Stephen was glad to have it nearby, even though with a bit of fortitude, he manages to say that he's not going to indulge in laudanum. He doses Duhamel, he doses Yellow, and then he we note that he has a store of a compound that he calls sudden death. I don't think we ever learn what kind of poison it is. Right. But it says in one minute file, he had enough to deal with 50 Duhamels and plenty to spare. Although as a physician, he doubted he could use it to intentionally injure another man. And Mike, there's a little tiny hark back to the high role that the Hippocratic Oath pays in Stephen's character. When Diana was talking earlier on in the story about ending her pregnancy, he was having none of it. And even though he's a spy and he would do people to death in all kinds of ways in hot blood, he's got some reservations, hasn't he, about using this poison on somebody else in cold blood. Right, right, exactly right. It's just part of what makes Stephen such an interesting character. Mm. And, and Stephen is very much, he didn't eat much, his mind, or you kind of see it turning over and turning it over. Where are they? Where are they headed? What's going on here? And he's wondering, you know, whose prisoner are they? He, he knows that the French have a, a lot of different intelligence services and that actually they compete with one another. And there's also still in France these very powerful men. They were powerful during the you know, royalty. They're powerful under Napoleon. And, you know, some of them may even be out of office, but they still have great influence. He also knows that if they are the army's prisoner, then probably the game is up. They would torture him. Yeah. And he thinks to himself, you know, I'm not sure I can hold out the way I did in my younger days, thinking about back on Mahan. Mm. Uh, that, you know, his anger might save him, uh, but he was glad to have this dark green vial as a as a sure way out. And it, it, it gets a little dark here, right? Yeah, it does. He turns from this into a reflection about life as it had been when he says, apart from his political activities, his whole heart was taken up with Diana. And even though she'd taken off with Canning, then she still had this extraordinary impact on him. And he reflects on still what a loss it is to him that he doesn't feel the same way about Diana as he used to. It says, the pole that held his needle to the north and gave its pointing a significance that it had lacked since her reign came to a sudden end. Mm. So he knows that she's going to be close by in Paris. He knows that she's going to be shopping in fashionable shops. He's also really certain, and we should stick a pin in this thought, shouldn't we, Mike? He's yeah. really certain that she would never, never part with her great diamond, a fortune in itself. This is the diamond that she got from Johnson. Her other jewels there, all the other rubies and diamonds and sapphires, would allow her to run riot for years on end. And... This is at once a sort of a melancholy reflection. He's thinking, yeah, it's, it's Diana and it's still not how it was. But on the other hand, he's taking a lot of comfort from believing that she's safe. Right, right. He's kind of reflecting to himself that, you know, they really don't know about her connection to him and that the French police, except for in criminal affairs, are, are, are not really that good. They're a little slow, a little inept, a little timid where the rich are concerned and she's still under Lamont's protection. So... He's thinking that probably Diana's okay, but he still can't figure out, you know, he, he gets why they took him. 
why take Jack and Yagiela? That doesn't make any sense to him. They're officers. They've got nothing to do with anything. They should have just gone off to the military prison. But it, yeah. it you know, it, it, just as it as it darkens a little bit, you know, O'Brien starts to lighten us up uh, just, just a little as well. That's right, Mike. The mood gets a little darker, but then also funny because we've got Duama locking the coach doors as they go past Versailles, which I've got to say, when I read it, was this little cold moment of, okay, now we're under threat. But <laughs> it presents an obstacle to people answering the call of nature. So Jack and Yagiela wake up. They're riding through the cobbled streets of Paris behind locked doors, and they have to go to the bathroom. There was no place to stop in the crowded streets. They have to ride on. Duhamel's obviously also in the same situation. The need is urgent upon him. And he calls forward, orders his men to clear the street ahead. Now, Mike, I wonder how many of us looked at a police cruiser going past with the blue lights on and thought, oh, yeah, I know where you're going. Right, right. Got to get to the loo right away. Right away. So they're, they're in a super tearing hurry. And even though you might want to sort of slow down and relish the fact that either, there's either beauty in Paris or there's menace in Paris, we can't do that. That's all undercut by O'Brien saying everybody urgently, urgently needs the bathroom. Right. Now, there's, a, there's an open question here about where they're going to end up. And yes. Stephen thinks that, well, Jack is a, a post-rank captain. Um, it would be unprecedented to imprison him and thinks back to the protests that greeted the similar treatment of a commander in 1805. Um, he thinks that if he can get the word out that he and Jack are in prison, then there might be some protection. But the choice of which prison they go to will tell him a lot. Yeah, and they they keep going, and Stephen's kind of clicking off in his own mind. Okay, if we were going to this prison, we would have had to have turned there. If we're going, ah, we just passed where the military prison is. And then they all of a sudden pull up into a place that Stephen's thinking it's got to be the temple prison, but it looks wrong and deformed. It, Stephen doesn't remember it looking like this. Yeah, so they are in absolutely the temple prison. And it's... <laughs> Duhamel's got the door open before the coach stops and Stephen is trampled in the rush as Duhamel, Jack and Yagiello head off to find the facilities. And then meanwhile, Stephen learns from the deputy governor that this is indeed the temple prison, that it's being torn down and that they're led up many flights of worn stairs into three communicating rooms with two pallets and a bed. This is going to be their home. And Mike, they're in prison. They are. They are. And, and they've kind of... You know, after the journey, after their trouble with their bowels, they all, you know, basically just hit the hay, so to speak. And and then in the morning light, they look around and they see they're in three very dirty rooms. They all lead open one to another. And there's one barred window looking out of this great big towering wall on the other side of a dry moat. And each room has a Judas door to the corridor, you know, a, a, you know, a door that has a peephole. And then the first room yeah. where, where Jack is actually housed has another door on the left-hand side, but it's bolted on the opposite side. And that room also has an ancient privy, uh, this primitive privy that basically juts out from the tower of the Templar prison. And, and as the wind blows in the right direction, it actually comes through the open base. So it's essentially you know, kind of a hole going down to this dry moat here. Uh, there had been a prior occupant that appeared to occupy all three rooms, kind of had it done as a sleeping room, you know, a library, a music room. Uh, there was a yeah. disjointed flute left behind. They're kind of just reconnoitering here where they are 
and, you know, trying to figure it out because this is not at all where they expected to go. No, that's right. But fortunately, Stephen's got some local knowledge. He's able to explain that they're in the temple. And this is a prison that really existed, Mike. This was the actual temple of the Knights of the Temple, the Knights Templar. We're talking about one of the chivalric orders of knights that traveled across Europe uh, in the Crusades in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And this was a real place. This, as it turns out, was also a bit of a home for the royalists where they, the royal family had been imprisoned and in the real timeline had become a bit of a pilgrimage for royalists still living under Napoleon. Right. And it was indeed being demolished, I think, a, a few years earlier in the real timeline than we are in the Patrick O'Brien timeline. But we get this great image, don't we, of this crumbling medieval structure that's being demolished because it represents a symbol of France's royalist past. Right. So it can't quite be the sort of forbidding secret police torture prison because it doesn't have that feeling. It no. can't quite be military imprisonment either. So they're in some sort of ambiguous holding zone <laughs> between oh. all these different authorities. And also it's not, you know, they've got rooms to live in and they've got somebody to come and attend to them. So it's not all bad, I guess. No, no, no. Now Jack does remember that there was a commander right of the Royal Navy who was imprisoned there and killed. So he's he's not very happy with that. But as he's thinking about that, to your point, Ian, that this jailer comes to order their meals for the day. And he's saying, you know, you can have the standard rations or for a modest consideration you know he'll send out for food using the money that was taken from them when they entered the prison but is being held in their accounts so they're keeping accounts they can take out his tips they can take out the food and they're they're in this you know this jailer has this kind of comic scene of all the different places he would recommend and where they should order no 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 order from here all that but Stephen kind of presses the jailer and says wait 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 you know, uh, that's all well and good. But for right now, Jack is in urgent need of a surgeon. And could you please have, I need to talk to the deputy governor as soon as he's available. And lo and behold, the deputy governor sees Stephen immediately. Yeah. And he's quite formal. O'Brien writes about his nervous uneasiness. It seems like he wants to be able to keep these people on side. He certainly seems unsure, this deputy governor, that he's really going to be on the winning side. So we get this sense that French society is in a bit of turmoil and that people are aware that the war might be coming to an end in a way that's not favorable to Napoleon and not favorable to France. So bless him. He's happy to obtain medicines. He takes the list of medicines that Stephen's asked for. Um, Stephen also very smartly asks for a second opinion. And he, I like the way he drops in a name here. He says, Captain Aubrey is a very influential man in his own country where his father is a member of parliament and I should be most unwilling to have to answer for any unfortunate event. I had thought of calling in Dr. Larry. Clunk, there goes the name drop. The emperor's surgeon, sir, cried the governor. Do you speak seriously? And Stephen's able to, with complete truth, to say, well, we were students together and he was present when I had the honour of addressing the Institute. Uh, but since I see in the monitor that he's spending the rest of the week in Metz, perhaps a local man will do, <laughs> which is brilliant. Yeah, I know where I'm at. I'm up to date with the papers. I'm following you on Instagram. I'm across this. So please don't kind of tell me any stories here. Mm -hmm. Stephen observes that the blow went home and the local physician is sent for immediately. Right. And it's it's funny, I guess the the prison's very still very prestigious because of its history. The local surgeon, the doctor, comes at once. 
The governor, O'Brien tells us, stuns him with Stephen's eminence. And he's read all about Stephen's talk, all about the medical and scientific luminaries that were there, including a number of his professors when he was a student. And then Stephen just becomes a real peacock. He shows off before the doctor. He talks all about his publications. He's name dropping left, right, and center, (laughs) which Stephen later thinks is just odious. But he's trying to accomplish something. He's trying to get the word out to let everybody know that he and Jack are there. And upon leaving, he asked the young doctor to please remember him to any of Stephen's friends that he might see. And Dr. Fabre is only so happy to do so. As a matter of fact, he knows, Dr. Badalak, the accouchet that Stephen had arranged for Diana. And so Stephen says, ah, you know, I was terribly worried about that patient's situation. I would really like to find out how she's doing, and if you would be so good, doctor, to bring me some little glass vials. I I could use those as well here. Um, Stephen was thinking, you know what? All that sudden death I have, I can divide that up, put that in these little vials, and that gives me my, what O'Brien called, his more certain exit if needed. Mm. Uh, Yeah. Stephen does reflect that the Paris physicians are a talkative, intermarried, and clannish band and figures, having said that now, the word is going to spread faster than going viral on social media. (laughs) He's laid it on really, really thick, but you can kind of tell that he's laying it on just thick enough to put the fear of God and reputation into this, as you say, clannish, provincial, slightly gossipy doctor. Very, very smart. And he pushes it to the ultimate, right? I mean, asking for glass ampullae, that's a big ask, but the doctor's able to oblige. Right, right. So, so Stevens struck once, I think, in managing to get the word out there into Paris society that they are here and that he should hate anything bad to happen to them. He manages to get some medical help and also get some intelligence, hopefully, of how Diana's doing. Meanwhile, back in the cells, they're being pretty much ignored, except for meals and except for the visits of the, the deaf-mute barber. Now, the doctor comes back, Dr. Faber comes to check on Jack, and he says that he has received orders to join the army. He's been running all over town using Stephen's name, dropping this name with important people to obtain an exemption. So, funnily, the doctor's actually been using Stephen's own name drop tactic to help himself, the doctor. I've got a feeling that... Um, It might not be completely helpful. But anyhow, many doctors have said the imprisonment of Stephen and Jack and Yagiela must be an administrative error. And they said that they would weigh in on Stephen's behalf. We We get this really important news that Stephen's managed to make contact indirectly with Dr. Bodolock. He sent word that Diana's had difficulty in the pregnancy, that she might not carry the child to term. And Stephen is almost heartbreakingly kind of phlegmatic about this. He says, just as well. There are far, far too many children as it is. Oh, surely, sir, cried Dr. Faber, who had five with another Jew in a few weeks' time. Surely, sir, said Stephen, no thinking man will deliberately entail life upon still another being in this overcrowded world perpetually at war. Perhaps, sir, suggested Faber, not all children are deliberately not begotten. No, says Stephen. This is there. Enlightenment philosopher Stephen coming out here. No, if men were to consider what they were at, if they were to look about them and reflect upon the cost of life in a universe where prisons, brothels, madhouses and regiments of men armed and trained to kill other men are so very common, why, I doubt we should see many 
of these pure, mewling little larval victims, so often a present misery to their parents and a future menace to their kind. Oh, man. Wow. So, Mike, I, I'm looking at this thinking, I hope this is just situational. You know, I, I hope this is just Stephen at a low ebb, because this is a very bleak point of view for him to have, especially given that he might be connected to Diana, who might be about to produce a child. Right. But I, I've got a feeling that a part of this, the sort of skepticism about the world, I think that's Stephen. And I think he's always a, a bit half-hearted about the idea that we conjure children into being in what is otherwise a cruel world. But for me, the part that makes me kind of sad on his behalf is that he's prepared to see children themselves in a bad light. And when we know he's had some very warm, some very loving contacts with children, we think about the relationship that we had with him and Dill in Bombay. Right. But it says, I doubt that we should see many more of these pure, mewling little larval victims so often a present misery. I mean, that's pretty dark stuff. Right. Bah humbug. Ebenezer Scrooge. What? Yeah. Humbug indeed. You know, it, it's funny because we're, we're sort of building up here, but then O'Brien just leaves us as they're left in their cells, kind of ignored. There's all these sounds of heavy labor as the prison is, is literally dismantled all around them. Jack, it's kind of like when we're on the long voyages, Jack sort of determines watches and brings the place into naval order and almost naval cleanliness. Um, Stephen befriends a mouse, which is running back and forth under this little hole by that locked door in Jack's room. Turned out it had been a pet to the former prisoner, they learn. Um, and Stephen notices now, given that last comment, you know, Stephen and childbirth and everything, Stephen notices that the mouse is pregnant and he starts ordering cream and caring for it, especially to nurse it through. So a little bit of redemption here for Stephen again. Uh, I think so. I think he's got his own, he, he always mocks Jack for his superstitions, but Stephen's got his own low-key superstitions as well, especially when it comes to the, you know, the value of human life. Yes. And, and animals forsooth. Yeah. Now, Stephen's thinking about Diana as well. And we get this metaphor that I think is really important. Uh, what's the word? It's a, it's a really important summary of how we're meant to think about Diana because Stephen his mind wanders for a bit and he thinks about Diana. He remembers their time riding in England together in India. He, he wonders in passing whether she's had lovers since she's been in Paris where such things are common. And he thinks about the solitary huntress that he had once known. Yeah. And I think Mike, that the, the image of Diana as the huntress, and of course her name is not an accident and all of the association with horses and tigers and wildness and, and pursuit this is a really great kind of button to put on top of all of the characterization of Diana that we've had so far. Right, right. That, rather than sort of dwelling on this idea of, you know, I wonder if he's running around with all these men. He's like, no, no, no. I know Diana. She is yeah. solitary huntress. She yeah. is. Uh, in, in a way, like you said, Stephen is kind of filling in a lot for Jack and Diana becoming quite the character in this novel. She is. She is. Makes me wonder where and how we're going to hear of her next. But... Let's uh, let's hold that thought, because meanwhile, Jack's thoughts are turning to escape. And this is both Jack's character, and I think he also regards it as his duty. He's a military man in prison. He sees it as his duty to, to get himself and his, uh, and his comrades out, even though they're in the middle of Paris. And he's been scouting the territory. He discovers that 
Many people over the years have worked at loosening the bars. He sees signs that one of them has been sawn through. He sees signs that people have been scratching at stone. And Stephen looks out and sees this sheer drop down to the moat and an apparently impossible, or you might say impassable wall. And Jack's got this idea that they can work out of sight of the Judas hole, that they can work privately in the privy, if you'll forgive the alliteration, and find some way of taking out the stone floor. Um, he notices that there's a stone block that's been sealed into the masonry on either side with molten sulfur, that the, but that there's a hanging that covers the entrance that might conceal their work. So this story begins to build of them starting to dismantle the masonry above this privy area outside their room, that they're going to be able to keep going at a little bit like, like um, a World War II movie, a little bit like The Great Escape. Um, like the story of the wooden horse, they're going to be able to conceal themselves and just scrape, scrape, scrape away at a way out of the prison. They also notice, by the way, that there's another door from Jack's room. They're not sure where it leads, but they don't know. They ask the guard who can't tell them anything but likes talking about the prison. And meanwhile, Stephen, who's still worried about the continuing effects on Jack's digestion of the crayfish, um, says, I do assure you, my dear, that if you continue to breathe the mephitic exhalations of 600 years of misdirected filth, your escape will be by way of a coffin rather than a rope of knotted sheets. So Stephen and Yagiello agree to spell Jack <laughs> in his daily shifts above the privy. And Mike, um, it makes me wonder if there's a bit of a metaphor going on here. Where they are right now is is somewhat safe and they're getting nourishment, but they're not free. Right. And in the outside world, they can be free, but in danger. And to get from imprisonment to safety, they're going to have to climb past some effluence. Very much so. So uh, maybe there's a metaphor. But anyway, Mike, it occurs to me that all this talk of privies um, might mean that some of our listeners might need a break. Oh. So how, why don't we take this moment for a quick visit to the head and then we can all regroup after this short break. We're glad to have you all aboard and would love your support at patreon.com forward slash lover's hole. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash lover's hole. Help us defray some of the expenses of making the lover's hole and join us for some additional content. Welcome back. You're with Ian and Mike listening to the lover's hole. Yeah, so you know we're we're working away, working away in the privy. Stephen's a little worried about Jack's health, so he and Yagiello are going to spell Jack because otherwise Jack would just be there twenty four seven. But as we can well imagine, they are not the kind of helpers that that Jack would have liked, and and they're of as little help as as Jack predicted they would be here. They have one nail that they're using. Stephen drops that down the hole, and he's kind of. Stephen's spending most of his time in the privy dealing with hypotheses about how to best do this. Yagello is just kind of ADHD all over the place rather than sticking with the signed area. Oftentimes, you know, Brian tells us he's kind of clearing useless areas of centuries of dried dung, but that doesn't contribute to the goal at all. And he spends, Yagello, when he's not working, He's sitting at this window seat, singing in his sweet tenor. Jack had fixed the flute. Yagello's 
playing the flute. And he never thinks of going in there because every minute they're not in there, Jack is. O'Brien writes, Jack is like a gigantic rat gnawing at its cage in the darkness with infinite patience and determination. It's really good. This is the... um this is the Patrick O'Brien behavior lab again, like we spoke about with Jeremy all those episodes ago. We, we've got we've got three different archetypes of the roles that people play. Mike, this is like you and me being back at work. Mm. You know, we, we've we've got the worker bee, we've got the doer, the the leader with his hands full, Jack. We've got the theorist at Stephen turning over hypotheses and abstractions in his head, and we've got the creative, outward-looking, easily distracted. <laughs> as you say, ADHD type, which is Yagiello, who's just super interested in the outside world and infinitely distractible and no darn use at all. But but Yagiello's keeping their morale going, and maybe Yagiello could yet bring some support to the team. I wonder what's going to happen next. Well, it, it's fascinating because they're, they're working away, and outside one day there's this huge crash, and the upper wall that was outside their window it just completely comes down. So this big wall that Stephen thought was sort of impossible to get over is, is gone now. And they can see the roofs and the garrets and the upper windows of the dwellings across the street. So it's like they can kind of see right out of the prison. And one of them, one of these windows has a young woman. She's gazing at the falling wall. Yagiela sees her, smiles, waves his flute, calls, you know, hollers, yoo-hoo. She smiles <laughs> back, you know, makes a little gesture and retreats from the window, but he notices, continues to watch him from inside, kind of back in the shadows. Uh, later, she comes out to the window, holds out her hand like she's checking for rain. Yagiello is imitating her gesture. She laughs. They contemplate each other. They start signaling to each other about the fallen wall. And, and I love it because Stephen is watching all this. You know, nothing gets past Stephen for the most part, unless he's at sea. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and he's watching this. Jack comes out of the privy and is just about to walk in view of the window. And Stephen stops him. You know, he's telling him, wait, wait, Jack, we have this classic situation of a captive and a maiden. And if, mm-hmm. and if you, Jack, you or I, two of us unromantic figures are to show our faces, you know, we may ruin this. And then Jack kind of, catches on and he tells Yagiello, play a melancholy air and then sing stone walls do not a prison make yeah so was was that bob dylan's second album or his third album i can't remember (laughs) right i don't know but it's beautifully portrayed as well you can almost see this as like the set of uh a play in the theater or even an opera with uh, the beautiful young woman high up on one balcony and Yagiello high up on another balcony and they're making faces to each other. It's a very, it's a tender scene and it's it's got a comedic element, but it also, it's a, a little note of hope. So not only have we got the presence of this woman who might be able to be a link with the outside world, but there's a bit of, you know, walls falling down and a little bit of a chink of freedom. Right. I think it gives us a little, little, little jet of motivation to carry on with the rest of the story. And we get to find out that this woman's name is Madame Lehideux. The guard returns for their order, and he mentions that this Madame Leider is the one from whom they've been exchanging pleasantries in their food orders. So this is the charming widow, who I suspect they might have written off and described, decided that as a, as a widow she must be some kind of old crone. This is the widow Leider who's been providing their delicious food, and this offers them the opportunity to continue their pleasantries and she sends a note saying if they've got any washing or mending or ironing, then Madame B. Lehideux would be happy to accommodate them. And first of all, 
Jagiello says they're fine and Jack's doing a great job with mending and they wash and they hang clothes. And Stephen says, this is nonsense. Stephen absolutely spies the opportunity here. These sheets are only dabbled in cold water. I like my shirts ironed. I like them to smell of lavender. Your uniform breeches with the cherry-coloured stripe. Do you know credit, Mr. Yagiello? They need pressing. Monsieur Russo, pray take these shirts, these breeches, and this coat to Madame Leder with our compliments. Pray tell her it will be a great relief to be shot of the shirts in particular. There is something lamentably squalid about shirts flying from the bars. And I do not let her to be either a seamstress or a laundry maid. Please say we are very much obliged to her for her kindness. Particularly, he says, the young gentleman here. Nice. nice. Oh, so we've got this growing connection with this ally on the outside, Madame Lehide. And Mike, I, I've, I've spotted a bit of a name game here. I've no idea if it's real. But there's something in common with the name of Dr. Fabre, the doctor, and Madame Lehide, the widow cook seamstress. Um, these are both the names of famous French industrialist families. <laughs> uh, there's there is the French pharmaceutical company called Laboratoire Pierre Fabre. So Pierre Fabre, perhaps a doctor himself, was the founder of a big French pharmaceutical and consumer health company back in the 1960s. Also in the 1960s, there was a Monsieur Lehide who was uh, an industrialist who was part of the Renault family and was a big deal in the automotive industry. So it's paints this picture in my mind, Mike, of Patrick O'Brien leafing through a French Sunday colour supplement magazine sometime in the 60s or 70s and seeing these two, maybe they're part of some kind of tableau of the men of the age, and he thinks, oh, I'm going to keep those authentic-sounding names, and they might make an appearance. A little yeah. Easter eggs from Patrick O'Brien just for us here. Well, speaking of Easter eggs, we have Yagello sort of <laughs> looking like an Easter egg almost. He's all dressed up. He's excused from all work, and his task is to make himself agreeable, sit by the window, and interact with their neighbor. He sings and he plays. They have letters that they write back and forth to each other in the meals. They have a little alphabet that they hold up. So they spend hours talking together each day. As they're talking, the temple continues to be destroyed. They're, you know, they're tearing down the walls, and they're a little concerned that, uh, you know, they're working on the privy. And Jack is telling Yagello, um, you know, if if we don't get out of here soon, their prison might be gone, and they might be taken somewhere else. So let's, uh, you know, let's spread a little more canvas with the lady, and he needs a cold chisel. A hand spike and five fathoms of one inch line. This is Jack's decided if he had these, he could do a week's worth of labor in one hour. So uh, as Stephen's tending to the mouse who's given birth here to this grapefruit, Yagello is given the assignment. See if you can get these from the widow. Wow. So it turns out that yagiello has got some usefulness after all. Right. Hmm. Yagiello's not sure. He's a bit nervous of rolling the dice like this he's pretty sure that the time is not ripe but to coin the classic jack phrase there's not a moment to lose jack notices that she hasn't minded the cutlery that they've taken to use for digging and that therefore maybe they'll help and after an hour of long silence in comes yagiela looking sullen he says her window's shuttered she's disappeared and she's not returned <gasps> plot reversal yeah so when supper arrives it was very plain not the usual. Maybe we've lost our contact with Madame Leide. Jack says to Yagiello, don't worry, you did your best. He's got another plan for making more headway with the privy. And Yagiello's really downhearted. He says, oh, I miss her so. She says she will never see me again. 
And Mike, I don't think we ever get to find out what the cause of this temporary absence of Madame Lehideur was. We really don't. It's it question mark. All of a sudden, you know, I, I guess we're kind of led to believe the way it's written that, you know, the request just went too far. And days come and go. The, the shutters are still shut tight. There's no light behind the shutters. The plants that she's been watering and raising have gone. Morning comes. The shutters are still drawn, not even opened to let in sunlight, which you would think would be the way that she'd start her day. Right. And with this, we learn that hope began to desert our three heroes. But then... But then, to their astonishment, breakfast comes along with Jack's coat. And it had all the breakfast food that Yagiello had requested. And inside Jack's coat pockets, strong silk cord and a cold chisel in each pocket. And it says, Yagiello sprang from the table with a radiant face. They saw the garret window open. The lady and her pot plants and her bird appear. She arranged the pots in the sun and then, with a significant look, and the kindest smile. She took the dove from its cage, kissed it, and launched it into the air. Wow. Ah, oh, we, we were ready for a dove metaphor. <laughs> yeah. And O'Brien served one up for a dove in time. That's right. Work, it was good enough for Noah. It's good enough for us. We like this. It's so nice. You know, we're, we're ending chapter 10. There's hope in the air. It springs forth here. And just as suddenly, you know, O'Brien is always, you know, it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad. The guard comes unexpectedly. It's not time. They ask for Dr. Matron. They don't tell him anything. They take him downstairs. Stephen is deposited outside the deputy governor's door. He hears this argument and they're really pressing this governor pretty hard. And finally he gives in. But Stephen hears him saying something about it would have to be signed for, returned before the end of the day, and they bring Stephen in, and there are three soldiers, a colonel, a captain, and a lieutenant. You know, They're all looking a little forbidding. Yeah. The lieutenant leads them immediately into a carriage, and they're riding back through Paris a bit. Uh, and, and to add, uh, I guess... I don't know, a little bit of insult to injury. Stephen is kind of very carefully monitoring where they're going, trying to figure out where they're taking him. And boom, he sees Diana out through the window. There's a a woman who's driving a carriage that Diana is in. And the woman looks like somebody from the Napoleonic court. Definitely not Diana style. This is pretty fancy stuff. And they turn into a home that Stephen recognizes as belonging to a former princess, you know, uh, the princess of Savoy, who had married the greatest Mm. fortune in France, and she became heir to the greatest fortune in France. So what's she doing going into here? He doesn't know. But but by doing that, Stephen misses, they've now pulled up to a place and and he's missed where they were taking him. Yeah. So he's, he's got to recollect himself again, having briefly landed in the world of Diana and fashionable Paris, he's in front of a room full of military men. Yeah. And it looks like looks like a bad end, doesn't it? The room is laid out with seating that makes Stephen think of a court-martial. And they get straight to it. They say, Dr. Maturin, we know who and what you are. But before we deal with the matter of your colleagues in France, we have a few questions to put to you. And Stephen is absolutely retaining his composure. And we get quite a lot in this scene, I think, of the the, the internal thoughts and kind of interior dialogue that Stephen has as he's assessing how much they really know and how much they're pressing for and how much of their own ignorance they're giving away as they press him. 
So he says, he gives the very kind of straight back answer first. He says, I'm only going to answer questions that may be asked of a prisoner of war officer. So they go on. They ask Stephen about serving as a surgeon on the Java. So they're reaching quite a long way back in time. Mm -hmm. But Stephen realizes then that they've mistaken him for the surgeon Fox aboard the Java who was in Brazil. And then they asked Stephen to explain why the description of the surgeon fits you. They said, even to the marks on your hands, says the major, taking a paper from his file, five foot six, slight build, black hair, pale eyes, muddy complexion, three nails on the right hand torn out, both hands somewhat crippled, speaks perfect French with a southern accent. Yeah. Stephen Stephen throws him off a little bit. He says, well, you know, if you go get the Navy list, you'll find out that the surgeon was Fox, not me. And and that's how he's, he's discovering, as you say, in this, this that they've, you know, yeah. confused him for Fox. He's clearly not Fox. But this, you know, obviously somebody from French intelligence had spotted him and connected him to this journal, just got his identity wrong. Um, and and mm. Stephen's thinking to himself, as you say, we get a lot of Stephen's kind of internal thoughts you know, he's really glad that at this point they don't appear to have any information from Boston because he's well known to French intelligence there. They continue on. They ask if he speaks Catalan and they ask about the murder of the French general on Grimsholm. And Stephen says that these are outside the bounds. He can't really talk about being on a British ship because he is an officer. And he admits, though, that he was in the Baltic. He was on the aerial. But he had booked passage to study the birds of the Baltic. He said, you know, again, if you consult the Naval Chronicle, I'm not the surgeon on that one. I'm just kind of going along and uh, I don't get tobacco. <laughs> I've paid my own way here. And, you know, this yeah. colonel is just infuriated. You know, tell me you're on this ship. You know, you are uh, seeing birds. You won't answer whether you speak Catalan. So we'll assume you do. And he said, well, then, you, you know, you can assume I speak Farsi and, and, and Sanskrit as well. But the colonel is like saying, so what birds did you see? And, of course, Stephen names them all, given their Latin <laughs> correct species names. And that really infuriates yeah. the colonel. But one of the lieutenants there confirms that that's actually the correct species for the area. And Stephen says, look, gentlemen, I am well known as a natural philosopher. And then they sort of say, ah, yeah. So they want to ask him about the Institute yeah. where he did not come as an officer. So he's not bound by, you know, they can ask him all the questions they want because he was not an officer, not a prisoner of war then. No, that's right. And they begin to talk about the numbers of people who stepped up to try and tempt Stephen when he was visiting the Institute, try and tempt Stephen into doing something against France. And Stephen re remembers this very well and was totally aware of it as it happened. And he's able to give a very straight denial. They don't seem very satisfied with this and they threaten to torture him. I think they use the phrase, go to extremes if he doesn't answer questions about Grimm's home and questions about his sources of information. And Stephen again, is, is able with perfect sincerity to say, you are asking for what does not exist. I repeat with the utmost possible emphasis that during my stay in Paris, I never departed from a scrupulous observation of neutrality as a natural philosopher. And they, they carry on putting forth the names of these people that Stephen allegedly and did actually talk to. And he repeatedly re replies, natural philosopher to each right. of the names. And the colonel finally loses it. Natural philosophers, cried the colonel. Natural philosophers, my ass. And here's the key phrase. Who ever heard of half Golconda 
being offered for the release of a natural philosopher. A hundred thousand Louis? Balls. Of course he's a spy. Oh, half Golconda. We're going to need to stick a pin in that as a while, Mike, because I think we might be able to spend some time in a, in a very little while figuring out what that refers to. But the major, who Stephen has figured out is the real power in the room, the one who questions Stephen, shot a hard, steely glance at the colonel because this phrase has revealed something and there's an awkward silence. Right. So there's some hint, there's some hint that some presumably huge amount of wealth, half Golconda, sounds like it's a reference to a huge amount of wealth, has been offered to help Stephen. And that is potentially great news but it does make Stephen vulnerable because pretty much as the French officer says, who would pay a ransom for somebody who's just a bird guy? Right. Well, one of the things that Stephen had thought about on their journey to Paris back in that original coach ride was, you know, the problem was they may not know things about them, but if they get a bit of an inkling, if they have some intuition, they can always bring in lying witnesses and tidy things up here. And lo and behold, the major calls a civilian witness, uh, Favet, and he's accompanied by a man who Stephen recognizes in Laurie's organization, so another of the intelligence services. And Stephen has watched this man before, although the man doesn't know Stephen necessarily. Uh, it's a man from the Ministry of the Interior. He operates out of the former royal palace, which is now the Palace of Justice in the Revolution. And, you know, it's the place that thousands of prisoners in the French Revolution had been taken from to be guillotined. So this guy is, you know, one of the more ominous services here. And it says that this guy, he had never knowingly seen Dr. Matron, but O'Brien writes, he stared at him with a naked, avid curiosity. Oh, chills. Yeah. Again, we're, we're just we're just half a step away from everybody being able to confidently put two and two together. And, and Mike, on the one hand, we can tell that Stephen is being very savvy and very composed about what he says and the hints that he drops. We can tell that some of Stephen's work that he did earlier on with Dr. Farber is probably paying off. Right. But there's something holding people back. There's some risk, there's some caution in the back of these people's minds, I think, that says they can't go the whole way. They can't just yet denounce Stephen and take care of him. Yeah, because Stephen had been thinking, you know, if I ever get, fall into the hands of the military, they'll just torture me and, you know, they'll get whatever they want. But for some reason, he's now in the hands of the military and they're, you know, they're going through this thing of questions and witnesses, not just putting them on the rack. And they bring in this, this false witness, this guy Fauvet, to testify that Stephen had offered to carry messages to England, that he'd spoken disrespectfully of the emperor. And Stephen, again, with 100% sincerity, is able to say, I've never seen such a contemptible exhibition. I'm surprised that even a civilian can sink so very low. And there's something going on here because Stephen sees Delaris whisper in the major's ear and hears the, overhears the major saying, no, no, no question of it. You will have to arrange that with the temple if you can. For the moment, he belongs to mumble, mumble, mumble. And Stephen can't hear the name of his owner. So this name, whatever it is, has a significant effect on Delaris. He gives a low whistle and this insistent negotiation continues. They're still not going to back down, though. They, Stephen's told that they know much more about him and who he is than he imagines. And Stephen's going to be sent back to his cell to consider changing his answers or to have him and his friends suffer the consequences. 
Yeah. So it, it it's interesting. This as Stephen is being sent back to his cell, he's accompanied by what O'Brien calls a Judas haired lieutenant, meaning a redhead, mm-hmm. right? Um, okay. Medieval art featured Judas always as a redhead to make him sort of stand out from the rest of the crew in these paintings. And and Shakespeare used the expression in As You Like It here. Um, now, Ian, you and I are both fathers of redheads, so I think we might take we are. This, this thing, <laughs> right? You know, I, I think back more to Game of Thrones and Kiss by Fire and the Wildlings, you know, red hair, beautiful, it's wonderful here. But Yeah, but red, redheaded stepchild is still a phrase that people use. So. Well, you're right. This is too true. Yeah. But there's the Weasleys, the Weasleys. There's some good redheads yeah, here yeah. in the world. Got to love a ginger. Very much. Yeah, God bless all the right. out there. And by the way, I, I shouldn't be saying that because, as uh, as Tim mentioned, keeps reminding us, only a ginger can call another ginger ginger. So I apologize. Oh, good point. Yeah. That's right. Well so. Done. Well, well, I was going to say, this lieutenant is the one that pointed out that the eider ducks were real. So he's he's been kind of playing good cop. And, and Stephen smokes that instantly. Mm-hmm. And this guy keeps trying to, you know, he, he tells him that, you know, he he was at the institute, and or he heard about Stephen's talk, and he he says, you know, you really have to to help us out here. And as he's talking to him out through the window, Stephen sees a real double agent that he recognizes marched out into the courtyard and shot by a firing squad, obviously arranged for yeah. his benefit there. And the lieutenant looks at him and says, "If you persist, you will be shot." Just make a few concessions and it'll be Verdun and a reasonably pleasant confinement. No more. Stephen replies, I'm deeply concerned at what you tell me. And believe me, I appreciate your kindness at its full value. But alas, your argument is based on a false premise. There are no concessions to be made. No secrets to be revealed. And with that, the lieutenant accompanies Stephen back in a carriage ride to the temple from this military prison around Rue de Saint-Dominique to, you know, to kind of cool his heels for a little bit. Mm. So no concessions, no secrets. That's holding out the promise of some big secrets, <laughs> some big reveals and some big concessions in the final chapter, Mike. We've got to find out really what it is that's holding back the French from finally making their move to eliminate Stephen Maturin. We've got to find out what this reference to half Golconda means. And we've got to go back to the temple and find out what Yagiello and Jack have been able to make of the supplies that they might have been able to get from the beautiful widow Lahide. Right. And, and you know, in the back of my mind, I keep hearing Sir Joseph Blaine warning Stephen back when he went to the Institute, you know, hey, you know, if the intelligence from America catches up with you while you're in France, you're in trouble. Well, it didn't while he was at the Institute, but time has passed since then, too. So in the hands of the military, there's still time for additional information to come through. This is this is uh, this has got me a little bit on the edge of my seat here. Well, in that case, Mike, I think we're going to have to keep turning the pages. What do you say next time to a bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart.
in, in North America, apparently. Oh, so there you go. Pirate. Sorry for that interruption, listeners. Normal service will be resumed. <laughs> <laughs> it's great radio. Perfect. Very good. All right.